The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. Welcome into episode 16 of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, and I'm coming to you from Drum Factor Direct here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This week's guest is the great Larnell Lewis. Larnell is a Grammy Award-winning musician. He is most famously uh, one of three drummers in the band Snarky Puppy. We talk a little bit about that, how uh, different drummers get different gigs for different tours. Um, we also talk about his uh, his semi-new gig as a full-time professor at Humber College in Toronto, where Larnell is based, and how he balances being a touring musician with being a full-time professor. Um, we also dig into his recent solo record. So what he did in 2020 was he, he recorded a whole new record at the same time, made videos of every track. So that is called Relive the Moment. That's available on all platforms. Also, there's a YouTube video for every track on the record. So check that out. Go to Larnell's YouTube page, check out all those pieces. And then we just start talking gear like we always do. So let's get to it. Here is the great Larnell Lewis. I should have asked you ahead of time. Are you a gearhead? Oh, that's a good question. Um, define gearhead. Cause I think that's going to be very important. To mm. <laughs> Do you collect gear? So when you say collect gear, like vintage drums or other instruments, or do I just have like more than the average person? <laughs> are we talking about gear acquisition syndrome or are we so talking you are about a gearhead? This is what you're getting at. You just don't want to admit it. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so I don't have vintage drums. I would love vintage drums. Um, I have a funny story about that in a little bit, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think I would like to be even more, um, to know even more about, you know, time periods of certain companies and the gear they made and what changed the industry. I would love to know that and then acquire things that make sense. Um, I'm rebuilding sounds for myself, just changing things. But yeah, I guess you could say I'm a gearhead. So what do you have, mostly new, new stuff? Mostly new stuff. So for my drums, um, being a Yamaha artist, I'm able to, you know, get the kits that I need. And even at that point, I'm not asking for like a million kits, but uh, if something new comes out and they want me to feature it, mm -hmm. we'll have a conversation and figure out if it makes sense for me to, to, to actually have it. So the latest one was the uh, stage custom hip. Anyway, the short is, uh, yeah. So I have, you know, new drums, like a Phoenix, uh, stage custom hip, um, hybrid maple. Those are the kits that I have here on site. And then, you know, DTX drums. And then what other is the, uh, the hip kit doing for you? Ah, great question. So I've only used it a handful of times. Um, but I want to use it everywhere. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh man. Oh, so for an, a bass drum that is 20 by eight, yeah full sound and i'm talking about acoustically in the space and i mean even when you're standing like 20 feet away you know you're not expecting that so um you know we have a, a mentor my wife and i have an, a mentor who's getting you know he's not older but he's you know getting down you know with an illness and so we had a backyard jam just at his place and i decided i was going to break that out and you know it was me and another drummer that played and so when that other drummer played you know that's the thing like you got a kit you want to go up front and see what it sounds like right mm -hmm. and um the bass drum was the biggest surprise for me considering its depth what are the dimensions eight by 20 uh, correct yeah that's small yeah so you want to take that on the road I want to take it everywhere I can <laughs> possible. Like it's, there's actually, so I did a clinic for Yamaha Canada and they mic'd up that kit, that actual kit. When I was done the clinic, I took it home. And so, you know, besides maybe missing an, an even lower floor tom, which is what I'm used to sound wise to balance out the bass drum, you wouldn't know that's what I was playing on. <laughs> now, what about that floor tom snare? Is that giving you what you were, you get from the regular snare? Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, which is another surprise. That's maybe the second surprise. So for me, um, obviously, you know, having that floor snare tom, um, floor snare tom, might as well call it a snare tom. Um, <laughs> the, the low snare, um, not used to having it on legs. That's a, that's a great option. Yeah. And uh, a, a pro tip 
for anybody who's, uh, you know, as tall as I am, I'm six, four. And so I find that, um, floor toms that are shallower in depth that are meant, you know, to be on legs with the standard legs that come with them just are too short for me. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, Yamaha provided me with, a, a quite a few orchestral, you know, I guess they are more mostly used in the orchestral realm, but they're like even longer. I, mm. I didn't measure how long they are, but really long floor tom legs. And with that snare, that low floor tom snare, it's perfect. Mm. Absolutely perfect. All right. Where can we find those? All right. Make a note. I know. Well, I mean, it's, 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 I think it's just asking, right? It's, I, I know they have like a series of bass drums that are on legs. Yeah. And I think those are what they use those for, but. Well, when you get into vintage drums, you're going to be shocked how short the legs are on those old Ludwig floor toms. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're like oh, two yeah. feet, maybe. Maybe. Not for me. <laughs> going to be like reaching down. Um, so you played some shows with Snarky Puppy this summer, right? Correct. And it looks like I just checked the, the fall calendar is pretty booked. Are you on all those dates? No. No. Yeah. None of them? None of them. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so where is your snarky puppy kit? Sorry? Where is your kit? The snarky puppy kit. Oh, so um, all three drummers for snarky um, were Yamaha artists. Yeah. And so uh, we're using a, which since we've acquired the kit, we got the kit and then COVID hit. So I think there was like a short run that the guys were able to do. And I hadn't, I haven't even seen it yet, but it's a um, a hybrid oak with a variety of sizes. And I think I'm the only one that uses the 22 out of all the drummers. But um, it's in the U.S., wherever the, the the main hub is, is in the U.S. I'm in Canada, so I, I don't get a chance to check it out. But we usually backline kits wherever we go, depending. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, if it's Europe. So how does the band decide who's going to do the runs? availability really yeah so um a call goes out to all the musicians you know um and then they'll just put out a series of dates and we'll say what we can do and then we'll just try to balance out the schedule amongst everyone so everyone gets an opportunity to play Hmm. so what do you got going on this fall um i'm a full-time professor at humber college oh nice that's great yeah yeah so what is your course load Ooh, <laughs> so I'm pretty much, you know, it's uh, I'm teaching um, the second year master class, percussion master class. Um, I do private lessons with students. I do I have an ensemble, which we do music in the neo soul R&B realm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also teaching a uh, performance course where we basically work on heading to your first, I'll call it your first capstone project, which is a 50 minute performance at the end of the second semester. Mm. And we go through things like performance anxiety, working on, um, you know, your set list, working with a tech team, all these, you know, all the necessary things when you're a band leader, rehearsals, stuff like that. That's great. Yeah. And then there's meetings and other stuff on top of that. So. That's the crucial stuff. I just did mm-hmm. a, a interview for another show about what I think is lacking in, in music education, and that that's it. How to lead a band, <laughs> how to how to take care of the business of it. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> so, what is your uh, what is your education background? Did you go come up studying classical music, or what, where, how'd you get into this role as a college professor? Yeah. So um, I was actually a student at Humber College. Okay. Currently at uh, York University for my master's, which I've just put on hold with everything that's been going on. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so I went to Humber College and I'm at York University and uh, I went to an arts high school as well, where I was exposed to, you know, more in-depth jazz, um, somewhat of a, a semblance of classical percussion. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're looking in a wind ensemble or just, you know, the, the variety of ensembles and so um, concert band, that kind of stuff. But that's pretty much it. Like, other than that, it was all church for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so are you there the whole year or is this going to be a long term gig for you, hopefully? Yeah, this is the so 
As a full-time professor, this is my third year. Okay. But uh, I've been teaching there since 2009. Okay. Yeah. All right. Anyone looking for a college, check it out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's going to be interesting. How big is the, the, the department? How many students can enroll each year? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it varies, you know. Uh, this year... I can't really pin down the numbers because it's just, you know, people are not really wanting to. And, and also with like the federal and provincial, you know, um, decisions on like when we're going to, you know, are we going to yeah. be on campus in full capacity, all this stuff. Students not wanting an education in that form. Some students wanting to just complete and get over it. Some valuing the online because they can stay where they are at home because we've, you know, made more of a robust program, virtually speaking. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's. So that means you're gonna you basically touring in during the summer and winter breaks. Is that how you work it in? That's been my life. It's like <laughs> it's like just summertime, you know, and it's a little less. But um, you know, since getting the full time gig, I think I was on for maybe six months, and then COVID hit. Mm. You know, and so it's 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 still like a you know a work in progress in terms of like how I'm gonna get things done, but very thankful for the position the opportunity and and still being able to you know make moves as necessary so i've been asking everyone how they've been keeping creatively inspired during the the crazy year of 2020 in particular um and i noticed you put a record out so was that was that your way of keeping yourself going was write some music and record it and get it out there absolutely you know um a big thing was to um get video content out Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to do that. And we have some, you know, follow up pieces coming up for for um, that are associated with the record. But the the biggest thing for me actually is playing ukulele with my kids. Really? Yeah. (laughs) So I got two kids, Kari, he turns four in December and Kaya turns two in October. Okay. And so, um, yeah, like just having the ukuleles around. Beaver Creek, I believe, is what they what they are. Thanks to to Dario Canada, they handed us a few, and just uh, we just started rocking out. So they love them. They'll play. We got a Casio keyboard upstairs, just instruments in every room possible, and the kids know what to do when they get to it, which is the big thing. So if they're eating and I'm chilling with them, I might just like try to compose on the Casio, mm, you know, cool. just like just while they're there, or I might just come up with a riff and record it, or. Just anything, just kind of hanging with them. And if I if I find something and they start moving, I'll just, you know, record on my phone and it's like, cool, I'm going to keep that. <laughs> Does that end up becoming a piece for you? Absolutely. Really? Yeah. On my upcoming record, there's one that I, I started a riff a few years ago with my son and then I completed it last year and I'm still kind of, you know, buffing the arrangement just to make sure it flows. But, um, but yeah, that's it, man. Just, just capturing inspired moments. It's, that's my, my thing. All right. Well, this is exactly where I wanted to go. So first of all, you studied piano. Is that correct? At a younger age? Yeah. Um, I mean, studied piano. The, the best way to explain that is I started piano lessons at seven. I stopped at seven. Um, I, I didn't like my teacher, but my dad is a musician as well. My mom vocalist and music goes back to my great grandfather. So access to instruments was important. And my dad always wanted us to be really focused on theory. So, okay. Yeah. So how do you, you said you start composing ideas on the Casio. Mm -hmm. Do the drums enter into what, into that process at all? Like, when do you start thinking about what you're going to do as the drummer? Mm. So for the first record I did, I would say about 70% of it was written away from the drums and drums were thought of after. Mm. So I wanted an obstacle course or I wanted a a track um, or a vehicle really that uh, felt good you know, with the melody that kind of said what I needed to say. And then I figured once the band got their parts together, I would then add the drums and react to what they were doing. Hmm. So it was a little more natural to experiences that I've had before because I wasn't always thinking about the drums. And there's another side project I have where the main focus is to write from the drums first. 
Mm. And that's such a, a, a foreign experience for me in, in terms of like composing a song, but I like it, you know? So what would you recommend for a drummer who wants to start writing their own music? How would you get there? That's an amazing question because <laughs> I don't think that it gets asked enough um, from the perspective of like, you know, someone who's not, who doesn't have their hands on an instrument that, you know, is, is melodic as opposed to indefinite pitch, right? Mm -hmm. um, I would recommend turning on your recorder, playing a drum pattern that feels good, right? Whether it's on a stick pad, on a pillow, or quietly on a set of drums, and just start singing. Mm. Just sing in the air. Don't even think. Just sing. And if you're playing a shot and you're just like, it feels good to sing this against what I'm playing or to sing this with what I'm playing, just sing it, just do it. And then listen to it like two weeks later, mm. live life, collect them like Pokemon. And then just like, <laughs> just, just check it out way later down the line when you're in a completely different headspace and you can look at it from the outside um, and you're not, you're not holding on to exactly what it was in the moment because as a listener, they don't have the same attachment. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then you might find that in your jam, you're like, Oh, that's a really cool melody, but it really started from the rhythm, mm -hmm. right? It started from the rhythm and, and even the way that the melody sits, so much of it is affected by rhythmically what's happening or like the note length and, and this how staccato, how legato it feels. A lot of things that are not dependent on, you know, what we use here in, in, as 12 tones. So yeah, just sing and play. So then how do you go from inspiration to the work to finish it? Mm. What, what do you do then? Is this when all your theory experience comes into play? How does it get from an idea to a song? Yeah. Another great question. So ask for help if you need to. Mm. And um, it, 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 it's, it's a little bit deeper than just asking for help because I think asking for help has a lot to do with one, how you feel about asking for help or asking for anything generally speaking. So there's some psychological work that has to happen, but then also understanding, do you, are you surrounding yourself around people that can actually give you helpful information when you do ask? Mm. So now you have to start surveying your community and surveying your village and figuring out, do I have the people around me that will make me better? Mm. Do I have the people around me that will actually push me and encourage me and not just like, you know, suppress, um, shame, whatever, right? You need just mentors, um, people that play your instrument in the city that you're in, people that play other instruments um, in a band with someone that you really admire and dig. You know, as a sidebar, I often tell people, they say, man, I want to just talk to you and learn everything you know, Larnell. I was like, actually, you want to hang around the people I hung around with. You know, mm -hmm. you want to you want to listen to their perspective and kind of sit in the driver's seat because, you know, when I'm not there and you're in place as a sub, let's say, you got to make your own decisions. You got to, you know, play off of what's happening in the music and, and in the conversation. And so I think understanding how to ask for help, understanding who your community is, and even simpler, listening to records and filling your mind with information, so, you know, and not too much, but just enough so that you are still inspired to um, to dive in and still be curious and still, you know, because that curiosity is what's going to drive you mm -hmm. to want to learn and figure out more, you know? I have a tendency to to get insecure and overwrite. Mm -hmm. like, but I'll just keep layering parts and parts. And by the end of a couple hours, I'm like, I don't even know what to play on the drums now. Like, I've just layered so much stuff on this thing. And then I just take it back to the first idea. Like, oh, there it is. Just a baseline. That's all I mm -hmm. needed. <laughs> you know? And that's that's a great thing that you just said because, you know, it's... I had a conversation with someone the other day, and they were just talking about that idea of the first instinct, you know? And I guess just figuring out within ourselves, like, how do we value that? How do we um, determine when we need to keep going versus this is it? And I think it's just a level of awareness, but the awareness has to come from the comfort and the experience. And so if you're writing a ton of tunes and you're just like, you know, your tendency to overwrite, you know, which is mine as well. It's like, I'm kind of adding, for me, it's sections. Like 
I'm gonna just keep adding sections to this song. Like, there's not enough sections, man. We gotta like, and then I'll play another record. I'm like, they're just jamming on one vibe here. Yeah, yeah. What are, like I have ten songs in one. <laughs> it's like it's like an album out an album in six minutes, you know. So I totally hear you on that. Yeah, I always go back to like the Miles Quintet with Tony and how he always deconstructed the tunes. Like Nefertiti mm. is just a melody. There's really nothing mm. else to it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any records that are like your core inspiration? Or are you constantly listening to new stuff? Ah, okay. So for me, I've been getting into some new artists as of late. Okay. Um, I have friends who've sent me some playlists and I'm just kind of, cause that's kind of what it is now. You know, like I'm not ending, ending up in a place where I'm listening to full records mm-hmm. either because I'm just, you know, learning new material preparing new material for teaching, changing diapers, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> oh, so um, my f- the latest artist is Alex Isley. Okay. I've been checking her out and loving her production, her singing, the com- compositions. And, um, and then another artist I've been digging as well, her name is Tiana Major Nine. Okay. Right? Yeah. She has a song called Exclusively. And I will play that at least seven times a week, mm. at least. Right? It's very mellow. Um, it's Rhodes, bass drum, and I think like some maybe a bass, and then just vocal arrangement after that. Mm. Really pared down. Um, other than that, I, I just ask people for inspiration, ask what they're checking out. You know, doing the scroll thing, and I'm like, oh, I like what you're doing. So I might listen to one one or two of your tracks if I see someone on Instagram. Hmm. But my go-to records, <clears throat> Kim Burrell, Everlasting Life. Okay. Right? Gospel record. Mm-hmm. And then um, Jill Scott, Live, 826. Okay. Right? With um, Eric Trebet on drums and Thaddeus Trebet on bass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll go, I will gladly go back to those records and just sit outside just chill so what do they what do they give you what is it they bring to you well the Kimberell record for me came at a time when I was I was at a crossroads musically developmentally speaking so just like you know understanding okay I've grown in my ability I'm now seeing you know you know, exponential growth after a certain amount of time of practicing. And it was just the timing of, you know, I was on this trajectory of like growing really quickly in my ability and conceptually musically, and then enter in this like really, you know, connected because I grew up in church, Mm -hmm. but just like there was, it was the first time I'd heard like all this harmony and just like a vocalist that was really doing what she was doing. And, you know, the drumming was great. I think it's, I think it's Doobie Powell on drums and also Nat Townsley on drums. Um, Asaph Ward was the producer on the record and the band just overall, like throughout the album, this, I think one track where Kim is playing piano. She's a great uh, pianist as well. And just, it just blew me away, you know, Mm the first time I had actually experienced a record that had just completely just blew me away. And so Mm. there was everything about it where I just was so inspired. I had to grab, I'm like, okay, I like what the bass is doing. Let me learn that on the bass. I like what's (laughs) happening on the keyboard. Let me learn that on the keyboard. Okay. I can't play saxophone, but I'm going to learn that on keys. Okay. (laughs) The guitar part, you know, and just like, it was, there was just so much to it, you know? I mean, there were other records that inspired me as well. Like, um, I think an earlier one, but it didn't hit as hard as Kimberell was um, uh, Kirk Franklin's God's Property. Okay. Right? And actually, that's Robert Sput Seawright on drums mm-hmm. for that record. record, And uh, Bobby Sparks on keys for some of that, too. And, you know, that was cool because it was a transition, like, for my dad and myself, musically speaking, where it was a crossover time of, you know, we were getting out of the Caribbean-esque church sound and moving into more of like an American gospel sound at a church. You know, everyone was digging on that and Fred Hammond. And then we're just listening to that. And I hadn't heard someone before play 
that James Brown type stuff in gospel. Like it was just my, mm-hmm. it's just my entry point. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of it was happening before, but that was my entry point. And, you know, the use of like all those instruments, clav and this and that, uh, featuring other instruments, like a bass, in- like intro, like all this stuff that was happening. And I think what, what got me for those two records and Jill was just the production, you know, mm-hmm. which is what opens my mind. I think I love, drumming from a perspective where I'm supporting other instruments and I'm understanding as much as I can from my perspective, what they're doing and just trying to get inside of those little tight areas and just support or leave it alone or have a conversation here. But within my ability of, um, you know, um, independence between my limbs, just being able to, you know, I could hook up over there. I could support here, and then I could also elevate the energy overall. Mm. But yeah, yeah, just inspiration. So I want to come back to your solo record, but you you mentioned Spot, so that it leads me down this path of playing in a band that has so many different drummers and having mm. Spot. I was he the original, I believe. Yes. So uh, well, there were. I think there was one or two before Sput, but when the band really started going, because Sput was playing keys in the band before he played drums. Okay. Right. right. And then uh, went on drums and then that whole like Texas vibe, like gospel, gospel music scene, you know, thrown on top and then everyone just started doing their thing. So with that material, if it's a new song with no drums on it, how do you build your parts versus if it's material that's already been written and you have to perform it, are you learning the original parts or are you developing your own approach each time? So if there aren't, if there's no drums on the track, um, what development looks like for me is learning the baseline, the melody and the comping rhythms. Mm. Right. So I, I would, kind of use the rhythm of each of those instruments, right? If I just took all the notes away and I had to make everybody play their part on like a drum, like a high or a low drum. Mm -hmm. So the bass would have a low drum, you know, the keyboards and guitars would have like medium drums, like congas, and like the melody might be a variety of bells, right? So then I would take that, listen to it like rhythmically speaking, and then just try to find the gaps to link or to um, to balance out. So it's either I'm doing what everyone's doing or I'm doing something else that's gonna balance out the energy overall. Mm. That's a great way to think about it. Do you go as far as to actually notate it out and, and put it on like percussion and record it or you, it's just a mental exercise? A mental exercise. Okay. Because everything, because usually I'll get like, I'm in a position where I might get music like super last minute. Mm. So like, you know, it's it's just a process I go through, and I mean I'll I'll hear the instruments as they are, but I'm paying more attention to the rhythm, and really the the melody and harmony are just ways that those rhythms are being intensified. So if the rith- if the melody is staying in one really narrow zone, then it's not high intensity unless it's in contrast to something else that's happening. So the tension is there because the, the note's not moving, right? Mm. So I'm looking for tension and release based on the frequency range, you know, harmonically speaking, but the rhythms are what I'm really listening for. That's great. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, how do you learn the songs? Do you chart them out or do you listen to them on repeat? I mean, what, how do you internalize all that music? Oof. Um so I would say for me, the way I internalize music in general is having an idea of, of a variety of song forms mm. and then just saying, what's the closest song form template that this applies to? Okay, now I just need to change these aspects Mm. And here is the flow. So I could imagine the conductor, you know, like pushing the energy this way. But at this section of the song, this is the instruments that get featured here. These are the instruments that get featured. 
these instruments that get featured and not even in a soloistic way, but just, you know, timbre wise, like the band is now supporting the saxophone. Mm. Um, the band is now supporting the drummer. The band is now supporting what's happening in the bass. The bass and the melody are the vibe, right? That's the jam, but everything else is arranged in such a way to prop it up. So song form is the biggest one for me. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full-line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instruments, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. So we mean um, like AABA form, but maybe the bridge is six bars instead of a, that's that type of process? Yeah. So, you know, for example, identifying when I first listened to the song, am I listening to an intro? Did they just get right into the the head? Mm -hmm. um, if it's in the jazz idiom, then I'm listening for, you know, okay, this is like a this type of tune versus that type of tune. Or like, you know, this is a blues. This is a, you know, rhythm changes. This is whatever. And then based on the artist, they're going to put their own spin on that mm -hmm. particular form. I mean, I liken it to uh, movies, right? So I'm not a movie buff, but there are classic stories that exist and storylines and plot lines. And I feel like the art is in how, you know, the, the director and whoever is on the creative team, how they, how they're able to give you that same storyline in a fresh and new way, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, it's true. Every action movie is exactly the same. But yet we love them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so, so the, and then, and then, then the question is, then do you think you could write your own action movie? Right? So then you're like, okay, well, I've seen a bunch. I get the gist. Okay. Now there's an art to certain things that are happening unconsciously to, to build up the tension and intensity. And then you just play with those details, but the story is going to be the story, you know? So that's that's how I internalize music. Do you compose that way too? Like start with a form and then fill the gaps and modify? Mm. Good question. Um, I'm going to say it's not the only way I do it. Mm. So my, my biggest thing is I'm an energy seeker, basically. Like I'm looking for path of least resistance that allows the energy to just go... <clears throat> so for example, if I have a riff and you know, I want to loop this riff and it feels good. I'll say to myself, how long can I stay on this riff for? Does it need to open up at this moment? Mm. It should open up. Should it open up to something that's more rhythmically complex? Should it open up to something that is more harmonically complex? Because I want to keep the integrity of what the melody is doing. Is this supposed to represent? I think, let me backtrack. One consistent thing for my songwriting is thinking about the narrative that I'm writing towards, that I'm that I'm trying to convey. Mm. That's one thing for sure. And with that, I will figure out if I need to, if it needs to be a jam or if it needs to be like, you know, a song that kind of is through composed, like just start to finish just sections and we make our way. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about... um. The record, the recent record is called "Relive the Moment." Mm -hmm. A couple, a couple tunes in particular, I want to, I want to call attention to. That's the title track. Well, not the title track. In the moment, mm -hmm. that's all done with a multi twelve pad. Is that correct? Yeah. So that's a really interesting experiment. Um, I hope you don't mind if I ask you to tell us how you did it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the secret sauce, y'all. <laughs> So the way I did it, it um, it started with an and it's a piece that I so I have I play in a band which is currently called um, the New Abang Quartet. Um, previously, 
called Rinse the Algorithm. Okay. And so Rich Brown, the bassist, in fact, fun fact, the night I met Snarky Puppy, I was actually playing with Rinse the Algorithm at that club. Hmm. Okay. Right? And that's Rinse the Algorithms by far one of the bands that I like the most challenging music I've ever played. Like if okay. I want to get stronger at drums, I'm gonna do one of those gigs, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So um <clears throat> there was one piece on a record I had done with Rich, and there was somebody that was playing Kalimba, and and I realized, man, like I, I love that sound. And so I started experimenting with some of the patches on the unit as they were. And then I was like, you know what? I need more from this. And then in talking to Yamaha, specifically Sean Brown, shout outs to Sean Brown, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then going through the manual as well, he wanted me to do a clinic tour where I broke down like the DTX kit and also the M12. And so I'm reading the manual and I was like, I could do four notes per pad on the DTX M12, mm-hmm. right? So I was experimenting with that stuff before, but then I was like, you know, this might be a good combination because it's a, such a staccato sound, right? Mm-hmm. So it's all, the whole piece is sitting in the region of A major. Mm-hmm. And I figured that if I did like an A kind of sus chord, right? Like a one, four, five, mm-hmm. um, or a one, two, five, and something else, um, at least those notes being held as a chord, I can play any bass note I want. Mm-hmm. I can play any melody I want. And I could play any additional like kalimba type you know, in Bira, like type mm-hmm. sound that I want. And so um, having that pad just sitting there keeps it dreamy. And that's four notes in particular. I think, uh, I think it's specifically actually it's B, C sharp, um, I think, and F sharp and something else. I can't remember. But it's like there is the major third in there. It's like a major nine kind of vibe. But then the bass notes I have, again, go through the range in a different order. So I have one pad that has a core bass line to it. Mm-hmm. And then I have a second pad that has additional notes. And so as that chord's being held, I can play in sequence any one of those two pads and make up a bass line that I want. Mm-hmm. And then same with the melody and additional bell parts. So none of it is sequenced, right? It's all It's all played live it's all played live and the only thing that is programmed in the unit is the order of the notes uh-huh. so that i have to remember <laughs> what pad i hit when and what notes are where mm-hmm. and it's basically just remembering how to cycle back creatively to the top of that pad and so i'm managing you know all 12 of these pads with you know four layers each of notes you know, and just kind of moving through it as I please. So how often does does the performance vary? Is it relatively consistent or you allow yourself to take it wherever? Since releasing the record, um, it's found more of a home form wise. Mm-hmm. But that's more so, again, from a structure of intro, second part, you know, a third part, which is more open and then an improvised part, and then an outro. Mm-hmm. So the form has for- firmed up more, but because I feel like that was the most successful route to take with this patch, but the the time signature changes every show, mm. the feel changes every show, um, you know, the intensity, the tempo, all that stuff changes. Do you have other pieces in the works using the same concept? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how I can now not only use the unit, but integrate um, Ableton mm. into the setup, you know? So from a gearhead perspective, um, now that the EAD-10 exists, yeah, which is something I've been wanting for years, I can't even tell you. Like, probably I've been trying to do a version of that since since 2006. Hmm. Right? What were you doing before then? So I wanted to loop my drums. That's yeah. the first thing. 
The second was I wanted delay on my drum kit to, and be able to be able to control it. Yeah. So the two things I was doing, <clears throat> one is, um, you know, mixer. Um, and, and it's funny, like a lot of the gear I have was because I was trying to like work towards that setup. Mm-hmm. So I had an interface and I didn't do my homework and I thought the interface was, could be standalone and I could also use it in an interface. That's the, uh, eight pre Motu. Oh yeah. And obviously that wasn't the, the correct way. So, I was like, let me just keep it. I need an interface. And it's like, you know, the drivers are decent, whatever. I'll use that. Um, I got myself the Echo Park Line 6 delay pedal, mm-hmm. right? Stereo delay. Um, and, and it was recommended because you can insert different, uh, like I'll call them cartridges that allow you to um, change what the pedal does, just like putting it into the body of the pedal itself, mm-hmm. the casing. So, you know, I got that. And, you know, obviously I can do the trail off and the tap tempo, all this stuff. Um, another version of the rig was using um, Loopy HD, which is an app on uh, iOS. Okay. I don't know where that. you can basically tap one of these circles and have it loop something and then tap another circle and have that loop it. And you can go from three separate looping cells to, I think, as many as 12. Hmm looping cells and I was using the iRig HD Mm -hmm. and then I had a small mixer and I was feeding that into the loopy HD into my phone and I had like MIDI control this and trying to do the the pedal to start and stop and it was insane (laughs) and 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 you know and then a variety of setups you know from that getting a smaller interface all that stuff but now with the E80 10 um, I can connect that straight USB to my computer, and then mm-hmm. I have the world of effects on Ableton, and also what I have on board with the EAD, and it just right on the kick drum. I don't have to think about it. Right. So that leads me to the the tune, the Forgotten Ones. Mm-hmm. Was that conceived with the EAD ten, or did you come up with the piece and then start using the EAD? Because you're utilizing the delay for your tempo, correct? Yeah. And so um, that was that was brought on with the EAD 10, but at the same time that I was touring with my band. So I've always wanted to have this effect. I'm thinking about drums in this way, and I'm mm-hmm. still building, you know, another rig altogether that will give me kind of the closest to the true expression on drums that I want to have mm-hmm. and access to everything. Um, without Elon Musk, like kind of connecting something to my head and, you know, so, um, but uh, shout out to Elon Musk, um, but I'm sure but, he listens. Oh yeah, man, you know, be great. You know, let's work together. Um, but for real, um, but yeah, so, so for me, um, it came out of a moment after I played a tune called Coconuts, I would mm. then go into this kind of drum solo moment which usually always happened at my clinics, but then I now put that into my band on tour and then I would go into in the moment. And so mm. that's kind of like the magic okay. trio of events of tunes, but having the delay, having the access to all those sounds, um, you know, it gave me, it, it. the delay for the forgotten ones kind of is, um, just signifies the spirit of my ancestors, you know, and, and those whose shoulders I stand on. Mm. And so every time I do something, it's like, not that they're behind me because I've moved past, but you know, like the, the carbon copy delay, the way that works and like generations before you, it's kind of like they're fading away a little bit. So like all of that to me just played into all the stuff I was doing. And then knowing that every time I do something, I do have that, their power. I do mm-hmm. have, you know, their, their energy. I have, you know, I've been saying it lately cause I heard it, but, um, I am my, and we are our ancestors' wildest dreams, mm. you know? That's great. And so, yeah. so that to me is where, where that went. And it was mostly, you know, improvised like, again, like form wise, like, um, expression contour. Those are things I'm intentional about, but the content itself is, is what I'm going to always be manipulating and changing in real time. How did you get to that form? For that piece, the solo drum piece. Yeah. Um, for me, again, like it's it's 
it always kind of starts from a drop in the bucket to like hitting into the ocean kind of vibe where it's like it just takes one drop and just starting to expand and it's it's a concept i use in my drum solos quite often where i'll state something augment it turn it on its head and then present something similar fade it out like a dj Mm. you know now we're here I might bring, I might call it back. I might call something else back. I might just push this and allow that to fade, right? Like it's, it's, there are a lot of visuals that I use to inspire um, what I'm doing because I know that it's going to change the way that I play. Mm. So the, the idea itself is improvised or the the basic idea? yeah like the basic idea is improvised where i'm gonna sit in a six eight type groove which i i love for that type stuff type mm-hmm. of stuff like you know heading into the west african like you know touching on the four touching on the six um and then using specific drums as well for what i'm doing and other mm-hmm. sounds um when i grabbed the bells i knew i was going to do it grab the bells which is why i had them ready but my thing that i've learned since i was younger and from doing competitions when I was younger was that I always reserve a moment in a solo, even if I have it planned out, reserve a moment in the solo to reflect what's happening in the room and reflect mm. what's happening in the space. Because I feel like that level of, of um, acknowledgement of the atmosphere, I think that it resonates with people more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 100%. That's great. All right, now we got to get to the nerdy stuff. Hey, <laughs> let's do it. How do you tune your snare drum? Or what mm. sound are you shooting for? What is your objective when tuning the snare drum? Which snare drum? Let's go main drum. Main, okay, main. Primary drum. Okay, so right now, um, the first thing is when the snare is off, can I get the sounds that I need? Mm. I again, of Caribbean background, Caribbean heritage, you know, a sound like a timbali is very helpful. But that also indicates to me that if I played the drum with my hand, I'm a little bit closer to a conga type sound. Mm, okay. So the, the, the sustain is shorter, right? At mm-hmm. that point, um, the fundamental is higher, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that then pushes me to not have too much muffling, right? Mm-hmm. on the snare and that's not going to which people have uh, very consistently told me on a specific YouTube video that my snare sounds like St. Anger and um, <laughs> you know that is what it is but um, you know we're out, we're out here learning every day One, 1% better 1% better every day and that's no slight to anybody I think it's just making sure that you know why you're doing what I what you're doing and I know why I'm doing what I'm doing so uh-huh. um, so I've been going half gel Mm. on the snare because I still need um, quite a bit of life when I'm doing certain things. Um, And then again, when I turn the snare on, I like my snare bottom head to be tighter because Mm. I find that I get more crisp um, uh, response and sensitivity from the drum. Mm -hmm. And then also helps the fundamental of the pitch of the drum go up. So um yeah, that's kind of addressing. That's the concept of of top and bottom. And then I'll, uh, as of late, I've been loosening my snare wires just a touch, mm. you know, so that um, one, when I'm putting the snare on, it's a little gra- more gradual um, a sound. When I'm hitting the drum, it's not the Dave Weckl thing where the two snare wires, he's got one loose, one tight, mm-hmm. right, to extend the sound, but. I feel like if it's too tight, it's just choking the drum. So I still need some life for the fundamental and the snares on. Mm-hmm. And um, and I still need it to need need the the sound of the wires to be there when I'm playing. Um, and if it's too tight, like it's like I said, it's just gonna choke the drum. So and what about the uh, floor tom snare? What is the tuning for yeah. that thing? So, yeah, so the way that looks is um, has to be a snare side head on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Right. So for me, Hazy 300 and um, I don't tune it too tight. It's tight enough to um, and it depends on the drum. Right. Like if I'm my main goal is to have when I open it up, can I get a really solid 
like open tone that is lower than my rack two, mm-hmm. but still thunderous enough to sit with my 16th floor. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, making sure that when I pitch bend with the, um, with the stick into the, the butt end of the stick into the middle of the drum, I have enough range to imitate a lower pitch talking drum. Mm. Right. Cool. So that's another that's another purpose for that drum for me, and and it's why I mostly leave it off, um, because I want that expression. And I feel like, especially with a, a hydraulic coated hydraulic was a, is what I use coated hydraulic black mm-hmm. um, coated because um, I want the brush option mm. coated because I want the attack to be similar to the rest of my toms because I'm using UV twos on my rack tom and floor mm-hmm. and um, and then also just the coating, you know, I mean, it, there's obviously a layer of oil, so it's going to be muted. But I use a couple of moon gels depending on how it's interacting with Rack 2 because it's so close and sympathetic vibrations. Mm-hmm. Um, but lower the tone of that top head, not too loose. I'll start finger tight and then I'll do like eighth turns and then I'll basically balance out the lugs to make sure um, that when I hit it, I'm getting a nice clean tone meaning no um, no kind of wrinkle distortion, no um, funny tritones and harmonics, you know, coming out of anywhere else. I just want like just a good thud. Um, and then, like I said, the bottom head is always going to also dictate how low with that fundamental pitch I can go. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, but not too loose because when I turn it on, I still need the bottom heads to the bottom head of the snare to be, useful <laughs> yeah what about the wires how do you manage that they got to be looser than normal correct yeah again it just depends you know um making sure that they're both even on either side because if i'm striking the hidden drum really hard i've had experiences where um you know the wires are slapping back mm-hmm. right so managing that and then too that's a, a touch thing like if i can't control that and if on the gig um but the wires are not too tight because again, I don't want the drum to be choked, but they're not too loose because I really need like a solid, very short staccato sound when I play the drum. So why is it in that position? Why not to the left? Is it? (laughs) Yeah. So um, when I had started playing with Snarky Puppy, um, I sat in that same, very same night I met them for the first time. my my band, like Rince, Rich Brown's band, Rinsey Algorithm, the band I was, I'm in, um, Sput allowed me to use his setup. Mm. And so I said, okay, sure. And I was like, do you mind if I use your snare here as it is? Yeah, just do whatever you want, man. I was like, cool. So, and it was a 14 by five and a half, like vintage snare, right? Mm. That he had tuned super low. So I'd never seen that. I'd never heard anything like it. And it was my first time playing it like that. And um, I loved the option there. It was weird to get used to at first, but I loved the option. And then um, playing the snarky tunes, when I was lifting Sput's parts, it made sense for what he was doing to keep the drum there. Mm-hmm. Instead of trying to put it all the way on the left and just like totally work more than necessary. Um, now it's become a thing where I keep it in order of the drums. I can pitch bend. I can keep everything inside the drums. And... I can, uh, it, it helps with the overheads. It helps with, you know, not extending. It, it's just adding a second snare. So I still get my six piece, like Vinny, Dave mm-hmm. Weckle, like, you know, just like all that stuff going on. And um, yeah, I just decided to keep it there and it and it's worked for me, you know? Just Are you options. using that left side space for anything else? Uh, the M12, and um, when I did the Quincy Jones tour, I put another floor tom there as well. Okay. And another snare, too. So I, on that tour, I had four snare drums. A, t- a 10 to my left, kind of a medium, uh, low tuned snare for, like, um, uh, Billie Jean, mm-hmm. right? And then the main snare, Kraken, and then the super low snare for anything else that I needed to do, like from the disco era. Awesome. Yeah. What was your first snare drum? The Pearl free floating, actually. You got it. May I? <laughs> yeah. 
like everything comes with a story. <laughs> so, Pearl, um, oh, I put these on the bottom just to um, keep them muted. Yeah. Um, because my wife plays steel pan, and with as many snare drums as I have, uh, <laughs> the room <laughs> so, starts buzzing. <laughs> oh yeah, right. So this is a fourteen. Uh, th- was a three and a quarter, I believe, or three and a half. Mm, okay. Free fl- free floating snare pearl, steel shell, steel shell. I have not uh, purchased any other inserts, so this is the original setup. Um, new. Original, I think, lug casings, but new inserts. I had to Ooh. get it repaired. Um, it was out of commission for a very long time. But coming out of the church, and anyone that knows gospel music from like the early 90s, um, piccolos were the thing. Mm. And so I was nine years old. I've been playing drums for, you know, I started at two. And so my dad knew I needed my own snare because we've been going to all these churches and you got to walk with your own snare. That's just the rule, right? Mm. So, um, breakables. So, got this snare and uh, it was Christmas. I was nine and this box is under the tree for me. I'm like, wow, like I've never, like this is a big box. Open it up. Curtains. I was like, (laughs) thanks for the curtains, dad. I really appreciate it. And he's just like, look a little bit deeper. I was like, oh, I started running around the room. <laughs> so I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. This is the first one. Are you going to put it back in? I know you're a Yamaha artist, but does it get any use these days? Um, you know what? Like, I, I actually am reassessing all my snares and going to give them tunings for certain vibes mm. so right now i'm just trying to find out what's most appropriate for this size yeah because um it's the thinnest snare i have the shallowest i should say snare that i have but um i mean it gets used for fun my dad had it because he has my other kit my first kit was a a, a premier xpk mm. 12 13 16 22 by 16 kick 14 five and a half snare yeah, which I have over there as well, the snare. Um, yeah. Well, you mentioned in the beginning, this is, we'll, we'll wrap it up here shortly, but you mentioned in the beginning that you've been experimenting with, with gear. So what, is, what, what does that mean? Where are your experiments taking you? Ah. Um, you can hear me properly, by the way, right? Yep. yep. Okay, cool. So experimenting with gear. So what that's looking like is I've been in love with merging like just getting the hybrid setup going but for me for the longest time i i had a drum kit that enabled me to hop through a variety of styles without having to switch a cymbal or a snare mm-hmm. and um you know adding percussion is the latest thing so now on on my setups depending on the band i have a tambourine you know, mounted on like an LP claw, cool. right? That I have available there, which um, on my Instagram page, I have a couple videos where I'm like kind of playing on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the tone of it. I'm still trying to search for the right kind of drum in that frequency, but it's going to have to be some kind of a percussion thing, you know? Mm. Um, but yeah, I just, I want the range. I mean, piano players have, you know, they can, they have an 88 piano you know key piano versus uh 88 way to key key keyboard that's mm. you know has all the sounds guitar players have pedals saxophone trumpet horn players are using pedals and so for me i know that my sound i want my sound to to start to i want to have the ability to morph my sound into any genre within reason but also just access things like certain effects, um, you know, and just be inspired by these sounds and just move freely. So whether it's, you know, again, connecting Ableton with the EAD 10 is a big thing. Um, you know, symbols right now, you know, I'm reassessing those. I'm, I'm in love with the special drives. I'm in love with the cluster crashes, mm-hmm. you know, but it's going to be looking at a bunch of other stuff as well. The ride symbol is always a thing for me where I'm in love with it. But I'm like, you know, I need something else or, you know, I got to do this or it's like, ah, mm-hmm. ah. Um, 
yeah so it's just having having access to sounds that will allow me to be the dj in my mind that i want to be mm. it. well i look forward to hearing the next record yeah <laughs> you working on it <laughs> yeah 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 you know um i've been collecting demos like crazy and uh you know in my space every now and again i'll you know i'll come down here or i'll be with my kids and jam on whatever i can but yeah always working on it right well thank you so much for doing this show um absolutely I wish you a great semester i hope it goes smoothly thank you yes i appreciate that and especially in these crazy times but yeah exactly and then i guess maybe i'll see you on the road over christmas or next summer <laughs> yeah 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 whatever it is it'll be <laughs> uh, thank you so much <laughs> no problem thank you that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoy the show, please drop us a review over on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast and a nice five-star review. If you dig it, that helps spread the word. And until next week, be safe and I'll see you then.